I just felt like, you know, if they don't want me, I'll go somewhere else. But then as my friends started to actually act on that and leave and drop out and transfer out, I thought, you know what? I'm in my third and fourth year now. What's to say that the next place I go won't be worse? I'm Michael Tamblin, CEO of Rakuten Kobo. We make e-readers and apps, we sell e-books and audiobooks, and we build technology that helps people spend more time reading. One of the best parts of the work that we do is that we get to talk with authors about their books, as well as the books that shaped them as writers and as readers. Welcome to Kobo in Conversation. My guest today is Eternity Martis, award-winning journalist and author of They Said This Would Be Fun, Race, Campus Life, and Growing Up, in which she tells her story of attending University of Western Ontario in London, Ontario, as one of the very few black students on campus. It's a bold, unflinching view of campus life and the intersectional politics of race and gender, but it's also funny and sarcastic and wise, and reading it at times feels like having an intimate conversation with the smartest person at the homecoming kegger, Eternity Martis. Welcome to Kobo. Hi, Michael. We'll flip back and forth a bit because your life story itself is fascinating, but I also want to talk about memoir as a craft and as a discipline and as a way of owning your own history. But let's start with the content of the book itself. This is a pretty, you know, it is a a bold look at campus life as experienced by a person of color. And so to set this up for us, tell me about your decision to go to Western and what led to your decision to go there. Well, my decision to go to Western was a very last minute decision. I actually went to the university fair when I was in grade 12, looked at Western, said absolutely not, and threw the lookbook in the garbage. So it was kind of my last decision. (laughs) Strong first impression. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I was bored. I'm like, I'm not digging this. And so I grew up in Toronto in the suburbs and I was very sheltered. I was very shy. I was super emo. So I had a punk rock phase and a goth phase and then an emo phase. So I didn't have any friends. And what I wanted to do was I wanted to go somewhere where I could, you know, learn English and women's studies, do the things I loved, but also have fun. And so at the last minute, nothing really excited me about any programs. And I went back to Western, actually took the lookbook out of the garbage and gave it a second look. And I was like, you know what? Let's go here. Did a little research. Apparently it was like the largest party school in Canada. So I took my best friend. We went to Western. But I naively thought that all of Ontario and all of Canada was going to be as multicultural as Toronto. And so I had no idea when I got there. From the first day I got there, I think one of the first comments I heard was like, hey, there's a black girl on the floor. And when I looked around, there were no other black girls on the floor. And people told me before I went to London, I would tell strangers, you talk to people, you know, in the grocery store. And they're like, oh, why are you going to London? Like, there's no black people there. Or, you know, my brother, my cousin went there and was like driven out by racism. And I never asked the question. So when I got there, I was like, oh my gosh, like they were all right. I should not have come here. And for those listening who are not Canadian or who don't know the Canadian university scene, describe the University of Western Ontario and London, Ontario for someone who's like in another country and wants to kind of put that in perspective. For sure. So I think that when you think of party schools in Canada, you can't think of any besides Western. So Western is kind of like a not hype to the extent of like elite schools or the partying you see in the U.S., but probably has the largest frosh week, so the largest orientation, have the biggest parties, 
a lot of school spirit. So the colors are white and purple. So a lot of people wearing school colors, a lot of keggers, a lot of bars. For a lot of people, I think London is considered quite small, but it's the 10th largest city in Canada. But there's not a lot to do. So actually, the city, you can drive or walk the city in 15, 20 minutes. There's a lot of bars. So kind of all you do is party. And so London's gained this reputation of being like a prestigious school, so to speak, but also having a very like, you know, like a work hard, play hard type of environment. And so when I went to the open house, the second I got out of the car, there were people everywhere, chanting, screaming, yelling, like, you know, dancing in like this, like, little area and I'm like okay so this is what I've seen in the movies like the blockbuster movies you know (laughs) where's the toga there must be a toga here somewhere (laughs) I know I didn't even get to wear a toga I was very sad about that university for a lot of people is about reinvention or at least you know taking the next step in constructing who we are and it sounds like that was it for you like you were you were looking at at creating like a new version of yourself or a different version of yourself. What were you trying to construct when you came there? Well, I think that for me, and I talk about this a bit in the book, I've never really felt like I fit in anywhere. And even though the book is a lot about race, to me, the book is about fitting in and growing up. And so I'm multiracial. So I grew up kind of as a black woman in a brown family. I live on the border of like the suburbs and the city. I've never just really felt like I belonged anywhere. And so what I wanted to do when I got to Western, it felt like putting enough space when you have no friends in high school and everyone sees you as a dork, you're kind of stuck with that reputation. And for me in the suburbs, anywhere you go, people see you and you never lose that reputation. So what I had wanted to do with Western was I wanted to be far enough away where I could start again and be the person that I thought I was, which is, you know, fun, kind of carefree, really engaged in like literature and all these things that it wasn't cool to be back in high school, but also kind of use parting as a way to enter a social scene and have friends, build community. And so I just wanted to redo, but I kind of wanted to be in with the cool kids, so to speak. And one of the ways that you do that at Western is, well, going out and partying and making friends in that way. And you encountered both specific disturbing acts of overt racism, verbal and physical assault, people coming up to you in blackface and staring at you like about as overt as you can imagine, but then also just this drumbeat of otherness, the small jabs, the little aggressive acts over time. And was that something that you noticed from your first moments there? Or was it something that you were becoming more and more aware of during your time there? It was something that I noticed from just about my first day, but it, it really built. And I really love the kind of horror movies, like the black horror movies we're seeing today, like like Get Out, where it builds. You're, you're in this environment that is very sweet and lovely, and but it's quite insidious. And there's a lot of, you know, really dark stuff under the surface and that's what it felt like in in London in my first year I was in residence I was uh, on campus living in on-campus housing and it was arguably like the best time of my life in my first year because you're meeting people you're having fun but then when you're having fun somebody steps in with like oh like the black girl's here and you're like huh that's funny but I haven't heard this before so I don't know how to react and so it starts with these little things like that where you're being called these names, they call you Shaniqua, you kind of laugh it off nervously. But then when I got into the city, when I moved off campus after first year, and moved into the city and started going out more, it went from, hey, there's a black girl here, to hey, you speak English really well. Hey, where are you from in the islands? 
to going out at nighttime when alcohol is involved and being almost threatened with physical violence, being told to go back to my country. At one point in the book, in the first chapter, being confronted with white students in blackface. And so it just, as I get older and as the years go by, it just gets darker and darker. And all those things that I had once thought were, you know, innocent enough or, you know, just slightly ignorant were actually very malicious and damaging to my health. What struck me through this book was this alternation of emotions. It was sometimes very tangible fear, you know, because you are facing racism in that moment. And as you say, not sure how to respond to it or how to react to it, but also the fear over time, just anticipating it, worrying about it showing up. But the other was exhaustion. You know what I mean? That, you know, not wanting to deal with just one more thing. Did I get that right? Were those kind of the two things that were really building over time? Definitely. It went from, you know, just dealing with this and, and being kind of in a space where you're kind of neutral about it to pure exhaustion to the point where by the time I was in third and fourth year, I actually wasn't leaving the house because I was so afraid of anticipating even a comment like, hey, like, where are you from? What's your background? I just couldn't deal with it anymore. I stopped participating in class. I stopped showing up for class. I stopped going out at night. I stopped, go, you know, I used to volunteer at the Fringe Festival, for example. I stopped doing all the things I loved because I just couldn't even fathom having to defend myself yet again. But then another thing that came out of that was anger. And I was angry all the time. And for someone like me, I can't be black and be angry and be a woman. And so I had to kind of subdue that. And then when I tried to tell people back home who ironically would say, it's 2010, there's no racism anymore in Canada, in the world, they didn't believe me. And so they saw my anger as uh, they said, you know, well, maybe just being a little bit militant or maybe you took it the wrong way. And so I was kind of just this ball of anger, exhaustion, frustration all the time. As you say, as Canadians, we're kind of smug when it comes to being a culture that ostensibly values diversity. But in your time at school and the years since, you talk in the book about how that's coincided with a rise in everything from hate crimes to like full out organized white supremacist activity at universities. And that seemed like something that a lot of people aren't aware of. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things about this book, I get asked a lot, why did you write this book? And I say it's because I was being gaslit by other people and I gaslit myself in the sense that all of this is happening. It was happening just, you know, Facebook was just a couple of years old. Twitter was on the ground, but not really running. We weren't really talking about race and to even say, you know, something is racist that didn't even exist five years ago. And so all of this is happening and there's no proof to anybody to say that this is going on. So dealing with that and then having to write this book and, meeting you know met students in my third and fourth year who were going through the same thing and that's when i realized that i wasn't making it up so from the first day i had been at western i was writing these things down things that people said to me the comments you know the blackface party i wrote all of that description down because i'm like if nobody believes me i'm starting to not believe me so i need proof that this is here so when i graduated from western and i traveled a bit Everywhere I went, no matter where I was in the world, I had met students of color who had almost verbatim similar experiences to mine. I've spoken to Western students from the 70s and 80s, similar experiences. And now when we look at what's happening with alt-right flyers, alt-right movements happening on campuses, we're using the free speech agenda again to serve the far right. This is still happening. And I always used to get told, why do you talk about race? Like race isn't a big deal you know, not everything is about race. And we're having this conversation, we're having this conversation everywhere. So race plays a big issue. 
is a big factor. You describe your time there as the best four years that were also the worst four years for you. Was there ever a time when you thought, screw this place, they don't want a smart woman of color, like I'm out of here, I'm going somewhere else. Was that a like an impulse that ever came up or were you just like buckling down and like toughing it out? Oh, every day I was ready. I was like, F this place, I'm done. Like the second my alarm went off, I was like, I'm over it. And I was insulted because I think it was a stereotype if you're a black student, and this has been backed up by research, people don't see you as very bright. They think that you're incapable. I'd be in group projects and nobody wanted me in their group. Like I would be sitting there while everyone else got into groups. I was often the only black person. And so there was this assumption that I was dumb. And I didn't deserve to be there, which insulted me because I, you know, I grew up with all the education I could ask for, all the books I could ask for. I came in with a great, you know, great average or GPA. And so I just felt like, you know, if they don't want me, I'll go somewhere else. But then as my friends started to actually act on that and leave and drop out and transfer out, I thought, you know what, I'm in my third and fourth year now. What's to say that the next place I go won't be worse? And so I kind of settled on this kind of discomfort that was known, this like comfort discomfort, as opposed to going somewhere else and having to do it all over again. Like at least there I had, you know, I had connections, I had community, I had people who could get me through. And it was those people, it were those people who who got me through. And so talk about that a bit. Like you had a group of people around you who were helping to buttress you and support you through this, including like childhood friend who actually signed up to go on this crazy thing with you. Yeah. So I actually took my high school best friend with me. Her parents didn't want her to go. I was like, come on, we're going to have fun. And we managed somehow to, they wanted her to become a scientist. And so we managed to get her in that way and say, well, you know, why would you deny your daughter the best science, you know, program? Great science Great program. <laughs> Exactly. So I had her and that was so nice because I'm actually a very introverted person. So to have her there, I think was the reason that I was able to kind of open up. But throughout the book, you see us kind of going in different paths. And for her, when she returned back home, her parents wanted to put her into an arranged marriage. They had expectations for her. For me, I didn't have those expectations. So as the years went on, she was realizing that she wasn't going to get to have that freedom forever. And for me, this was just the start of my independence. So I kind of moved on towards organizing activism. I joined a violence against women's group. I got into theater and plays. And that was my lifeline, having people, like having something to look forward to and something to love while I was kind of, you know, in this environment of oppression all the time was so important. And in my last year, there was actually a course called Black Women's History in Canada. And I had never seen so many Black people in one place in London. And that was a place where we had this course, usually courses at Western, where they were about Black issues were usually canceled. So it was a surprise that we had all these people. And we laughed and we cried. We did our work. We did our assignments. But just having people there to commiserate with was what got me through that last year. Because when you know you're about to leave, you're counting down every day, every minute. And they're the ones who got me through it. At the end of your degree, you wrote a piece for Vice magazine that in some ways was the core of what later became this book. How did that first article come together? So I wrote that in, it was published in May 2015. So I was doing my master's of journalism at Ryerson at the time. And I was still kind of, I came out, so I graduated the year before. And I was just this really angry, like constantly depressed, frustrated, just ball of fury all the time. And I couldn't figure out why that was. 
And I started to realize, well, you know, maybe this had something to do with what I had just gone through. And so I had contacted a professor of mine that gave me a contact advice and I messaged and said, hey, I went to London. It was awful. I'd like to write about it and report on the history of this place and the students who are currently there or had been there. And my editor was like, oh, we've actually been wanting to do put a spotlight on Western and London for a long time. So that's actually how it got started. And I went back to London. I went through the library archives. I learned about the history of the KKK being there. That they still had a you know a post a PO box on a busy street. I spoke to dozens of students who were suffering, who were you know had PTSD from this experience. And I don't say that lightly, but it was a very big issue. And then by the time it had come out. It had gone viral. I think within a month, about a third of London had already read it. And it was a surprise because I thought, I'm going to get trolled. People, you know, this is the end of my career. But um, it was overwhelmingly positive. And what it confirmed to me was that people in London knew this was happening. My experience was not unique to me. And that people wanted to change. And they knew they needed to do better. Did that feel like a career turning point for you as well? Like the sense that you can put this article out in the world and feel its resonance come back? Definitely. I think when you're writing, writing is such a subjective thing. And I know journalism is a bit different, but you just never know how anything is going to resonate. You never know what you're going to put out in the world and how it's going to be received. And I think what kind of shocked me, though, at the time was that I had done so it was personal journalism. And even then talking about personal journalism, it wasn't considered a form of legitimate journalism. And it was considered lazy and self-indulgent. But I had used my experience to highlight so many other things. But then when it came down to being published, it was actually labeled as um, stuff in the category of stuff. So it didn't belong in essays. It didn't belong in, you know, reported news. And it just reminded me of the ways in which these stories about racism are perceived. And when that came out, I was actually working in the newsroom and I overheard two people talking about it. And I said, oh, what, you know, what do you talk, what do you think of the story? And they were like, well, we want to have this person on the air, but we think that she's probably crazy. And so... It just, we're still having this conversation today, but I felt assured to know that my experience was not an isolated experience, but at the same time, it still wasn't legitimate. Even with the facts and the data, talking about race is still not considered legitimate in this country. I was surprised in the response to how much age has come up. You've talked about this perception that young people can't or shouldn't write memoir like basically you haven't lived enough yet and so like you should I don't know wait until it marinades or something like that (laughs) can you you talk a bit about that perception and pushing through that absolutely what stopped me from writing this sooner was that that uh, what do you know you're not old enough what kind of suffering have you had and I think questions like that from from family members from people I just met it made me think well maybe I didn't suffer And so actually my first couple of drafts were comedy. Like they were actually like, I'm like, oh, I'm going to see it at chapters in the comedy section. And it wasn't until my last year. My funny racist campus experience. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And I, I thought it was hilarious. And people were like, you know, this is really dark. And I'm like, what what are you talking about? It's not dark. But I realized as I was finishing up the book, that I had had to justify this experience, like being in this environment of oppression constantly, you don't have time to think, you know what, I'm suffering. You just get through it. And you use joy, black joy, you use laughter, you use friendship to get through it, but you don't recognize just how traumatic it is. And so I think that I just kind of misjudged the situation because I needed to get through it. Was it difficult to step back from that and say, you know what, I'm not going to shield the reader from 
the pain that I was feeling. I, you know, I'm not going to try to like soften it and make it funny for them. I'm, you know, I'm going to try to lay bare the struggle of living through that. Was, was that a difficult thing to do as, you know, when you're an author, part of you is always thinking, well, I hope people like this. You know, is, is it harder to write a difficult story than a funny story? It is. And I think talking about you being too young, there's no right, like there's no age that you go through racism. There's no age that you go through sexual assault. There's no rite of passage in that sense that gives you, you know, the like the Mario Kart coins to like move up and write a memoir. And so I wanted to show that, you know, this is actually happening. And when you look at other students on campus, we've just kind of dismissed all young people as having the time of their lives. You know, nothing bad happens to them, but these are a group of people dealing with bigger issues in the previous generation, like intimate partner violence disproportionately affects young people of university age. Carding disproportionately affects black and brown young men. Cyber stalking, cyber bullying, sexual assault on campus. Now students aren't just having to deal with, you know, student life. They have to deal with, they, they have to, you know, justify their existence on these campuses. So I wanted to bring attention to that. And it's so much harder to be, you know, raw and vulnerable and be like, we need to talk about this. Because for someone like me, as a woman of color, when you start talking about the hard stuff, either you get put into this category of trauma porn, where that's all you become is the sad story, or people think you're complaining. And it was really difficult to kind of weigh, you know, how do I do this in a great, in a good way? But how also, how do I go to family parties and still show my face? Like, how can I share my experience of, you know, partying or being sexually assaulted and still be able to justify it? And I think that's what was sad was that I was trying to justify it, but I had to write the book, you know, I had to write a book that was, was respectful to me and myself and in my boundaries, but also where other people could see themselves in that experience and get talking about it. And your own family was confused with your writing about racism and about Black experience. There was kind of a, oh, why are you doing this? Yes. So my family, so on my dad's side, my dad is from Jamaica and my mom is from Karachi. Um, they're also mixed with Irish, it's like Anglo Indian family, but um, I grew up on my mom's side. And so I have the best family in the world. I love them to death. And they're, I think that affection and that love kind of dismissed the other concerns. Like no one in my family had ever called me black. I had never heard anyone call me black, brown, nothing. Just eternity is eternity. And so when I started coming back from London and being like, you know, this woman called me the N word or told me to go back to my third world country, they were like, but I don't get it. You're one of us. And it became this thing of us versus them. Why do you talk about them when you're one of us? And um, they just didn't see me and the experiences I was having as anti-Black racism, even though they had experienced, you know, the go back to your country stuff when they came down to Canada in the 70s. So it was almost like a repeat that they had thought because they had gone through it, came here to give us, my mother and myself, a better life, that it was somehow done. And it wasn't. So not only did they have to you know, realize or deal with the fact that racism still existed all these decades later, but that their their black granddaughter, black child is also dealing with an experience they never had. Your family comes across so wonderfully through the book. They sound amazing. Let's talk a little bit, since we're kind of going back to your origins as a writer, which also means talking about your origins as a reader. What was the role that books had in your house? What was, uh, you know, what was the genesis of Eternity the Reader? 
Well, when I was writing this book, my grandfather said, you have to include that your grandmother read to you every night. Like, she's the reason you're a writer. Like, you have to. (laughs) (laughs) I love it when family gets involved. Don't forget this. Don't forget that. I'm like, well, we'll see what the edit comes back with. I'll try my best. But yeah, my grandmother, my mom was very young when she had me. And um, my grandmother was first grandchild in 23 years. And my, my grandma said, just give her here. We'll raise her. And so one of the things that apparently they raised me on were, were books. I had massive bookshelves at home. I used to like have no room. I shoved books under the couch. And my grandmother would read to me every single night. And it was a different book every night. Um, on Sundays, my grandfather took me to chapters or any bookstore. And he let me spend hours looking at books. And he'd buy me a couple. I tried to sneak in some like adult, you know, or like young adult fiction wasn't having it. And that's how it started. And then when my grandmother passed away, when I was eight, I tried to write a kid's book. And so I think that was the first time I really tried to actually write stories. So I wrote a kid's book. I started writing fan fiction around my teen years. I became super into punk rock music and alternative music. And Am I correcting that you're a My Chemical Romance fan? Is yes. That, is that- <laughs> And yes, and I had tickets for the concert that was canceled in September. For the reunion. <laughs> for the reunion. Emo never dies. <laughs> and you were also a writer of, was it My Chemical Romance fan fiction as well? I wrote from first to last fan fiction and a little bit of Fall Out Boy fan fiction, Good Charlotte. And I actually became one of the most popular fan fiction writers on the site I was writing on, and I was about 13 years old. So I had a huge following. I had sequels, spinoffs. I was doing the whole thing because, you know, I had no friends. So I'd come home and I'd write all night and I loved it. That was my world. I'm going to pause you right there because most people gloss over their fan fiction you know, <laughs> sort of stuff. But I want to dig into this a bit because, first of all, you're not the first author that we've had on this who's come into writing through fan fiction. But I'm also, I'm interested in it as as early writing community, as this sense that people can start writing and, and getting immediate feedback from other people who really love Fall Out Boy, but that it helps to spin the flywheel of writing and getting you kind of both more comfortable doing it and getting into the rhythm of producing it. Was that kind of the experience for you? Totally. Yeah. I'm, you know, I think that a lot of people are kind of ashamed they wrote fan fiction, but you're right. I, I think for me, that was where I learned the writing chops, right? Like I didn't come from a family of writers, you know, you were supposed to be a nurse or something equivalent to that. So having that community where you learn how to write because you're, you're reading other people's stuff, you're reading your own stuff, you're editing yourself, people, you know, around you, you're sharing ideas, you're learning what drama is, you know, what dialogue is. That's exactly how I learned how to write. And I wrote the things that I wanted, like the exciting things that I wanted to happen in my life. I wrote them in fan fiction, which unfortunately played out at Western, (laughs) but still it was an excellent, I think that's how I really learned how to write. And I think that for me, because I was, again, I was a black kid in a subculture that I didn't belong to. I wasn't seen as belonging to. So to be able to write what I loved behind the internet gave me the confidence to start writing. And it is, as I you know, as I think you wrote in one of your articles, like it's a long, lonely road being a black goth kid. And you know what was worse about it, Michael? At the time, I also loved Good Charlotte. So not only was I like a sad black punk rock kid, but I'd go out in public and no one liked Good Charlotte. And I had my little GC shirt and people would be like, Good Charlotte sucks. <laughs> so 
it was just a lonely, lonely road, <laughs> which is a staple of all of that, being sad and lonely and angsty. Exactly, which just reinforces your emo roots. Like, you just dig in there, then. It's like, I'm going to be so sad and so lonely. Yes. Just watch how lonely I can be. So... As you were starting to kind of transition from university, starting to do your own writing, and then starting to build this career as someone who was really doing personal storytelling and and building that as a legitimate form of writing for yourself, were there authors that you looked to or books that you looked to who helped to underpin that for you? There were. And I think unlike a lot of journalists, a lot of my of those writers were actually feminist scholars. A lot of the, you know, Bell Hooks, Audre Lord, Angela Davis, Julia Kristeva. I learned I think I learned how to apply that critical lens to my journalism. Like I, I love, you know, abjection, the abject. I love talking about other and otherness and, you know, Orientalism, the Orient. And so I had applied all that stuff to the writing I did as a journalist. And while I was, you know, finishing up my master's degree and already writing my book, I was looking at memoirs like mine. I was trying to find other people who were brave enough to talk about themselves or also other people who were journalists. So one of those being Sachi Cool, who wrote, um, One Day We'll All Be Dead and None of This Will Matter, Saeed Jones, How We Fight for Our Lives. So those kinds of books I was aching for. Roxanne Gay already had a couple of books out. She had Bad Feminist, Ta-Nehisi Coates. So... It was almost like I had come from this background where I couldn't find a whole lot. I found a lot of theory, like feminist theory, critical race theory, to summarize what I had gone through, but I hadn't seen it in journalism and in memoir. And then it was starting to come out, especially around the Black Lives Matter movement. And so those kinds of books I really loved. Jessica Valenti, Sex Object, you know, it's a white woman talking about this, but that was my experience, right? Like, what does it mean to be a woman and have be constantly objectified? So there were a lot of great memoirs out there that gave me you know, the boost I needed to write really honestly. And so having now embarked on this career and you know, one book out and hopefully many more to come, what advice would you give to the person who's listening to this wondering if their story's worth telling? I think every story is worth telling. And I think that sometimes we forget that we're not alone in those stories. There is a reason that so many of these memoirs do well. And it's because we have this, a lot of us share a universal experience, whether it's about race or growing up or fitting in or being a woman or being being anybody in the world. And so I think sharing your stories, writing them down, at least for you is important. And in the last chapter of my book, I talk about the importance of storytelling and personal storytelling, which is that we learn about our history. We learn what has changed, what has stayed the same through reading stories. And storytelling has been around for centuries in different cultures. And so to me as a journalist, I'm very much about the public record. And I very much believe in putting out those stories, whether you're writing them out, typing them, publishing them, sharing them, is the way that we connect as people of color, especially as marginalized people. And we kind of weave together our experiences. And in a way, it's an act of resistance, especially for journalists today and people of color, speaking out, speaking about your truth can get you harassed, kidnapped, you know, doxxed. But you can't have your words ever taken from you. And so I think that, you know, even if you're doubting putting your story down, put it down because it helps you work through what you've gone through. But maybe one day it will help someone else go through, you know, work through what they're going through. Uh, I think that's the perfect way to sum up your most recent book. Eternity, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. That's awesome. Thank you. 
I've been speaking with Eternity Martis. Her book is They Said This Would Be Fun, Race, Campus Life, and Growing Up. It and the other books we have mentioned here, and there have been many of them, along with previous episodes of the show, can be found at kobo.com slash conversation. There are so many good authors there. Be sure to catch every conversation by subscribing to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever else you listen, and leave us a review because it helps others find us and makes us feel good. Kobo and Conversation is produced by Nathan Maharaj, edited by Kelly Robotham, and hosted by me, Michael Tamlin. Thank you for listening.